0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Fly in the Wall. My name is Christian. I'm Abby. And we have a very, very special episode for you guys today. This is our first ever live recording. While we're not technically live right now, we're going to be. Uh, so, this is everything State of the Union on this podcast this week. So, Geopolitics Executive Director Moa Leithy actually held an event uh, right before the State of the Union uh, with two of our awesome Geopolitics fellows this semester, Nadim Alshami Shami and Stephen Law both who worked for, uh, different sides of the aisle when they were in Congress. Um, and Stephen, who's making his, uh, consecutive appearance on this pod, uh, it's going to be an exciting event, so stay tuned.
1: Yeah, and before we get there, make sure to, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and share us with your friends and follow us on social media, uh, it's at Fly on, the Wall pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can email us anytime at FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com.
0: Abby is our social media good. <laughs>
1: Yes, of course it's good.
0: Abby's only saying that because she runs it. This is true. (laughs) Uh, All right, great. Uh, Let's get into our awesome segment wheel. Uh, Can we spin the wheel, guys? (laughs) It's over or under. Uh, So, this week, over or under is going to be the topic of next year's State of the Union. Uh, So next year's State of the Union runs longer than a minute, or an hour, excuse me, hopefully it runs longer than a minute, one hour, 20 seconds, and 20 minutes and 31 seconds, the length of this year's speech. Abby, over or under?
1: I'm going to say over, just because there's going to be more happening in the past two years, you know? Like, in a year from now, there will be two years of a presidency to cover. It might even be double the time.
0: Interesting. So he's going to talk about this year and last year? Yes.
1: Just all the years.
0: (laughs) Uh, Spicy take from Abby. Um, I guess I'll take the under on this. Um, Honestly, uh, President Trump looked kind of bored up there towards the end. Um, I'm thinking that he's going to go much lower next year. Um, And also, speech writing staff is just getting a better idea of, you know, how long an actual speech ends up being. Uh, You know, at like 20, 30 pages. I don't know how long these things are. Uh, But they get a better understanding of uh, what this actually looks like. And maybe next year it'll be shorter or longer. I'm going to say shorter.
1: You never know. I guess we'll see a year from now. Um, okay, so next segment, want to spin the wheel?
0: The Anticipation.
1: (laughs) Okay, so the segment is Who Said That? Um, so here we're going to share a quote, and then we'll have to guess who said it. Uh, so the quote is... President Washington began this tradition in 1790 after reminding the nation that the destiny of self-government and the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty is finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. For our friends in the press, who place a high premium on accuracy, let me say, I did not actually hear George Washington say that.
0: Abby, thoughts? Who said that?
1: Um, I'm going to have to go with Bush 43.
0: Mm. Bush 43 is a solid answer. Uh, he was a pretty funny guy. I feel like he could have made this joke. Uh, That is not actually the correct answer, though. Uh, The correct answer is Ronald Reagan in his 1982 State of the Union address.
1: Okay. I stand corrected.
0: (laughs) You learn something new every day. (laughs)
1: Um, And with that, uh, there aren't any political picks this week. Um, So now we're going to get started with the live recording.
0: How exciting, guys! We are going live. Be excited. Be as excited as I am.
2: Yeah. Uh, One of the coolest um, uh, parts of my job here at Geopolitics is um, uh, our events like these, where college Dems and college Republicans come together. Um, back when I was a student here, we didn't do that very much. Uh, we were very siloed, and I think it speaks uh, volumes about <coughs> what it is. One of the reasons why we're here, uh, and and um, the student leadership behind it uh, in coming together to have these types of thoughtful conversations. So, <coughs> to both, uh, Geo College Dems and Geo College Republicans, thank you for your partnership and continued support. And happy to have uh, everyone here tonight. Um, last year, before uh, President Trump's first joint session uh, of Congress, the speech. Joint Session of Congress, Um, wasn't a State of the Union. We pulled together a bipartisan group of presidential speech writers, presidential speech writer from President Obama's administration and from President Bush's administration, to talk about what goes into crafting a State of the Union address. This year we're very fortunate to kind of uh, have a couple of geopolitics fellows who have a different vantage point on this evening as uh, two individuals who have um, been through this night uh, on Capitol Hill. Nadim, as uh, a former Chief of Staff to House Democratic Leader Nancy Pelosi, and Steven, who is a former Chief of Staff to Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. And so we thought um, tonight we could kind of have a conversation to pull back the curtain a little bit and get a behind the scenes look from a congressional perspective, what tonight means and what um, what they would expect and what their former colleagues might be expecting tonight. I was on the Fox News set earlier today doing a preview of tonight, and right before we went on the air we were all joking around that the state of our union is exhausted uh, and exhausting. And I think uh, nowhere has that felt more acutely than on Capitol Hill. And so, I'd love to hear from each of you, just to kick it off, from your own experiences. What are your former bosses doing right about
3: now? Uh, thank you again for, for having us. Really, this is kind of a, a, a different thing than I was doing last year and the year before and the year before, and the, um, to be sitting next to uh, someone like Stephen, who certainly I've felt his his pain, or the Democratic candidates have felt this pain to talk about how we view State of the Union. Right now, my former boss is in a in the office. The office is completely opened up and there's probably a hundred guests uh, plus members <coughs> and their guests and there's a opportunity to take pictures, eat good food um and leader Pelosi will stand up probably around 8.30 uh, before uh, guests begin to go into the uh, galleries and members begin to go into the galleries for the speech. Um, and can I give the uh, private pre to the president's uh, speech? She'll talk about why it's important for Democrats to be X and why it's important that we should do Y. Um... You know, and that's kind of a, a, a preview into how the night's going to go and how Democrats are going to react after this speech. Um, I really, that the night's always exhausting, to be honest. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's um, memorable for sure, but you just want it to... Because <laughs> you start at 30 in the morning and you're all the way through until midnight, right? Because all the members are
2: hanging out in Statuary Hall afterwards doing oh, stand up interviews. Nightmare.
3: <laughs> Walking through the gauntlet. Did you ever walk through the gauntlet with all the oh, sure. all the reporters and you know rank and file members just you know going after, you know talking to CNN or talking to. <laughs> PBS or talking to God knows what station from New York, and you have no idea, and it's just it's crazy, it's crowded. Um, really, it's just it's it's nothing like it. Yeah, I'm
4: sorry. No, that's good. That's uh, yeah, I, I think it's not uh, all that different if you're a uh, Republican leader on, on Capitol Hill. Um, it, it's an interesting moment, you know. One of the things that's uh, fascinating about our system is we have these these rituals uh, of of our uh, federal democracy that you just kind of take for granted, you don't much think about. But it's it's kind of unusual, you have this moment where the President of the United States, who obviously represents one branch of government, is here to intersect with another branch of government. And in some sense, he's not on his own turf. He really is on the turf provided for him by uh, the the Congress. And uh, what's a little bit unusual if you're the majority leader of the Senate is you're not the top dog. In the Senate. In the Constitution, the number one person is the President of the Senate who happens to be the Vice President. That's why I always see the Vice President sitting up there rather than the, the, the majority leader of the Senate, whether that's a Republican uh, or a Democrat. And uh, very much similar to what uh, dean described, uh, if you're the, the Senate leader, Republican or Democrat, you've got a huge crowd of people. You've got uh, well wishers, you've got special guests. It's a great opportunity to I mean, this is the best ticket in town for a lot of people, and you, uh, you hand it out uh, judiciously. Uh, but uh, particularly if you're Leader McConnell or or, uh, or uh, uh, Leader Pelosi, who uh, uh, you think about these things very strategically, uh, you know either of these people, and I know I speak for Leader McConnell, is, is, is looking at the excerpts of the speech, getting intelligence, figuring out what's going to be in there. Chances are there's been a private briefing from the White House in terms of what's there, and uh, at least for uh, the Republican leadership, they're thinking about what is it that they're going to be expected uh, to carry the water for uh, after the speech is given. You know, it's very easy to give a speech, it's much harder to actually carry out whatever the policy prescriptions are, and um, and it's, there's always a possibility that some of the material inside that speech isn't something that, that squares with what is achievable, given uh, what the uh, composition of your caucus is. So uh, it's going to be a process of evaluating what's the con- what are the contents, what are the expectations, what are the things that we think we can reasonably accomplish, and what are the things we're just going to have to kind of <coughs> finesse and uh, deal with because they're probably not things that are going to be in the realm of uh, uh, getting done. So uh, it, you're right, it's a, it's a whole day-long process where you're just kind of ingesting and digesting what is being given to you, and then you've got to figure out what does it mean for tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, and then you, 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 you start all over. Then you get to work.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, it, last year, when we had the former presidential speech writers here, they both, the Democrat and the Republican, both described a similar process that both Presidents Obama and Bush used, where several weeks... At, In advance, uh, they began soliciting input from all the various agency heads and various cabinet members and their staffs about what they thought some of the priorities were that should be worked into the speech. And then there's a extensive horse trading um, uh, process. If um, you're in, uh, does leadership, does congressional leadership of the president's party get to be part of that input
3: as well? No. Was that, what was it like in the Obama district? Yeah, we worked much closely with, the, with President <laughs> Obama than, than ever expected. And not necessarily, I don't know if it was a, uh, you know, we're going to come in and talk to you about what you want to hear, what's important. And I think our, our, our for the most part, issue a line, the first when we were in the majority and the president, you know, those two years. After that, we were playing defense, uh, but also mm-hmm. were looking for ways to break the dam. <laughs> Um, with the Republicans so we could try to pass some things. Uh, But there was opportunities for uh, the president's senior staff to come in, both on communications, on policy, uh, to meet with a small group of leadership staff and say, look, we think uh, there's opportunities here. We can't promise you that anything that you say is going to be in, uh, but you kind of have the pulse on the members. You know what the members want to hear. Um, so what do you think um, we should include? You know, anything from minimum wage, and the discussion on minimum wage, for example, was the how, how high it would go. And, and, you know, in that particular instance, we were very surprised when I mean, President Obama talked about a figure that was well below what Democrats were pushing, so that was, you know, so that was a surprise mm-hmm. at some time. But there was some collaboration, maybe more listening, and sometimes you're able to get a chance to have um, an issue that the, the the leadership pushes with with the president to be included in the speech.
4: Well, the one thing I'd say about this particular speech is that the first State of the Union address uh, is kind of a unique moment in a, in a presidency because it's the really, in some ways, the last speech that's given <coughs> that still is heavily influenced by the campaign. Uh, my expectation is tonight, and we're seeing a little excerpts uh, that bear this out, is that this is a speech that's going to be uh, heavily larded with the, the, the rhetoric and, the, and the, the promises that were made during a campaign. So you're going to hear a lot that sort of harkens back to, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, to the themes that then candidate Trump campaigned on when he was he was running for office. And so it'll, there'll be a if not explicit it will be a subtle look back to things that you heard that were talked about last year and you know part of his uh, goal is going to be to, to communicate to his, to the people who voted for him look these are the things that I said I was going to do these are, these are the reasons why you voted in office and, and this is the progress I've made on the things that I, I said I was going to do so I, mean, I think that's going to be at least a third to a half of, of what will be the at least generalized content of what he's got to say. And so it would be a little bit unusual in that I think the kind of congressional consultation you might imagine would be less in this instance because he's really still talking in some ways as the ex-candidate Trump who's now the president uh, who's still in some ways speaking to to the crowd that, that supported him. But it's also that first State of the Union is kind of a pivot moment where he's got to think a little bit about the 2018 midterms, Got to think about what this year is going to be like. Uh, he was able to check a few things uh, off that he promised he would do this last year, but now he, he really does have the challenge of some of the things that he wants to get done will require uh, reaching out to the other side. And so it's at that moment where he, in some ways, almost says goodbye to the campaign. The campaign's now over. I've done these things. I still have these things in mind. You're people who voted for me you are still my people, but now... I've got to broaden my appeal in some way. So that that's that kind of turning.
0: You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's political fun fact is brought to you by the State of the Union, which you should have figured out by now because this entire episode is based on the State of the Union. Uh, The State of the Union has actually not always been called the State of the Union. Although this is the language used in the Constitution, it was known colloquially as the President's Annual Message to Congress until 1934 when President Franklin D. Roosevelt began to use the phrase we use today.
3: But this is a and this is an unusual president as well. You probably haven't noticed. <laughs> in, 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 in reaching, well, in, in reaching, positive. I, view, I view it as a really a triangle. You know, when you're dealing with this president, because you're right, you, you're gonna have to find some ways to get enough Democrats to pass some important things that we have to get passed. Question is, will he work with the? administrate with uh with the Democrats and ignore the Republicans. That's highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. But he did it once. Or will the Democrats and the Republicans work together in Congress and ignore the president? You know, that's happened in the past. Uh not, not to hit well, you know, the first maybe the first supplemental was uh the first uh funding government deal was but um but I think I think you have to kinda watch um Beyond the rhetoric, how the policy shapes up and how the coalitions shape shape up. Uh, to me personally, I think mean, that's the most interesting um, aspect going forward. And uh, and I think and I think for the leadership, both Republicans and Democrats in Congress, it's just uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe.
2: I want to yeah. pick up a little bit on on what, some of what you both were were talking about. As I was kind of reflecting on past State of the Union addresses over the past few days. Um, you know, everyone is a little bit different. There has been somewhat of a formula that a lot of presidents have used where they use the State of the Union to reflect on <clears throat> what they think the successes are of the previous year, but also to set the agenda for the upcoming year. Sometimes they'll approach it a little bit differently. President Obama famously, I think, in his uh, second-to-last um rather than go through a litany of policies, gave four big thematics of, of what he wanted to do with the country in the, in the final quarter. Um, but another commonality I have seen is that State of the Union addresses right after an election are a little bit different than State of the Union in, in an election year,
3: Yeah.
2: right? Whether it's a midterm or a presidential year, <coughs> uh, as is the response from members of Congress on both sides. And so you touched on this a little bit, but thinking about it through the prism of a midterm, yes. a midterm mm-hmm. election that it appears to be very competitive, where Democrats are fe- feeling very bullish, in the House at least, mm-hmm. um, where um, we've just seen a government shutdown, uh, where that sort of played out in, in the Senate more than anywhere else, with an eye towards the midterm elections. Talk to us a little bit about that dynamic and how it impacts not just the speech but the members'
3: responses. Yeah. Uh, I think and I think President Obama is a perfect example because I was really, you know, there and um, during and the fight was always, you know, you should go very strong against Republicans in action and Republicans stopping your agenda during the midterm, you know, and and, and would encourage the administration to do that during the state of the union, <coughs> uh, and 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 that's, you know, and, and when you, like Democrats almost needed that, you know, in order to, to explain that because the president has the biggest bully pulper, right? And when he and well, I was going to say he or she, but soon enough it will happen. <laughs> but when, when when he stands up there in an election year. Uh, he has an opportunity to, to, to help shape the landscape uh, by being by setting the tone uh, President Obama at times did not wish to go there to mm-hmm. earn, uh, but um, but at times he had and, and he was very very strong but you're absolutely right you see it during the election during the
4: election year and I think you'll <laughs> see it this year Yeah. I would say at least with uh the president, I haven't seen the speech, uh, but I've, I've seen some of the thematics come out in a few of the excerpts. You know, one thing that I think is clear uh, is that this White House is acutely aware of the uh, the, the risk of, of sustaining some significant damage in the uh, in the 2018 midterms. And um, speaking to somebody who's involved in trying to change the result of that, I, I think it's actually very helpful to have that early knowledge. And my I wouldn't be surprised at all, of course, this is a president in a candidate who defies every expectation, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if he essentially divides his time between making the case that the work that has been done up to this point, even if you haven't liked the personal style, or even if there's certain things that you haven't liked, that it's basically helping the economy, it's basically helping your average worker. It's sort of making that case that this has been good for the country. Uh, And then the other part of it will be essentially a very kind of bipartisan message trying to elicit support behind some shared objectives, whether it's immigration reform and and then maybe a particular uh, infrastructure. And so I I think my, my bet is that it will not, he will pull his punches when it comes to a, a kind of a, a kind of a partisan attack on you know like we try to get all this done nobody helped me blah 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 I, I think uh, could be surprised I often am. Uh, but, uh, but but that, that, that awareness of the the the, cha- the political challenge that he faces uh, and is concerned about with respect to these midterms w- will affect the content of this and the tonality of it to make it uh, more conciliatory than you might otherwise expect but. I could be 100% wrong, and you know, wouldn't
2: surprise me. Yeah, you know, Some of the excerpts uh, so far show that he is going to try to extend a hand to Democrats yeah. on immigration, mm-hmm. right? It, rhetorically, at least. Yeah. Um, I want to touch on two more themes and then open it up. Um, delivering a State of the Union when your administration is embroiled in scandal uh, mm-hmm. also uh, complicates it. President Clinton delivered uh, a State of the Union uh, while or right around the time that his Senate impeachment trial was going on, which probably created some awkwardness uh, there in, in the hall. Um, and he chose not to talk about it, yeah. not to touch it at all, just ignored the scandal as he was making a case to the American people. Um, obviously, this president, <coughs> in the middle of a congressional investigation, a special prosecutor, uh, and so I'd love both of your thoughts on how that plays into tonight, both from his perspective and, again, that of those in the hall.
4: Well, I, I remember uh, way back when um, the, um, the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. And it was shortly before the State of the Union. And there were commentators openly predicting that the president would resign. And if he didn't resign, he most certainly would not give the State of the Union address. And and one of the many things I admire about President Clinton is that, that he never thought that anything was inevitable or that, that anything was insurmountable. And he went to that lectern and he gave a speech as if nothing else was going on. And by the end of it, you came to the conclusion that nothing else was going on because <laughs> it was such a forceful performance. And, um, and I, I do think... Uh, it is a unique story to be able to, you know, just like great opera singers who can perform when they've got a fever of 104, to be able to, to transcend whatever the crisis of the moment is. Uh, this president and, and, and candidate sometimes reacts to the moment. I don't think he will in this instance, but I think it is sometimes a weakness of his to react in the moment to the crisis and then therefore step on his own objectives. But my, my guess is that he'll... Stick to script and kind of stay away from Mueller and Russia and things like that. Should he talk about it?
3: If I were advising a President Trump <laughs> those words, <laughs> first time I have ever heard of those words, <laughs> I would uh, absolutely uh, uh, say no.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You are talking to, really, it's its two audience, I believe, out there. Your supporters um, who, are, who will always be with you no matter what. And this small portion of voters who are tiptoe on the line thinking, should we or shouldn't we support the president? Um, bringing the scandal, I think, would push them the other way. So, focusing on thematics, focusing on what you perceive as your successes, and the, you know, the tone of the speech uh, is important. But again, we don't know what's going to happen <coughs> in 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last thing I want to touch on
2: before opening it up is the response. Uh, um hard.
4: <laughs>
2: in the past, the party, the, the opposition party, has you know, taken a lot of different forms in its response, mm-hmm. grabbing <coughs> a, a member of the Senate or the House, uh, tapping a governor. Uh, I remember back when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, uh, he provided one of the Democratic responses to a President Reagan State of the Union address. In the form of an infomercial, it was a pre-recorded infomercial where they talked to governors all over the country, and he kind of emceed it. Um, in recent years, you've seen a Spanish language response get added into the mix, and with the advent of technology, um, you have what we're seeing tonight: five Democratic responses, two formal and three others. Uh, not the first time the Tea Party had one. Yes, um, right, that's right. True. When President Obama was in office, you had the formal Republican response, and then Michelle Bachman gave the, mm-hmm. the Tea Party response to him here. She's making a comeback at her. Uh, that's what yeah. I yeah. hear. Um, <laughs> and so, Don't I've, always, <laughs> I've always thought that this has got to be one of the biggest headaches for leadership, mm-hmm. is deciding who's going to give the response and how much input they, you get to get, walk us through the process from the selection to the
3: crafting to the delivery Um, I've done two of those with beautiful (coughs) um, uh, because I I, I joined her uh, office when she became speaker uh, in like end of February, so that was after um, President Bush's Second to last day of the year, so I did one um, after that and then the one last year. Um, It is a headache. I sent it, I sent an email to (coughs) Senator Kennedy's chief of staff to say, um, Best of luck thinking of you. I know he's going to do great, you know knowing how hard it is. No one ever does
2: great. <laughs> <No> one, <laughs> everyone <laughs> is always panned. You know, yeah.
3: my, my money's on Senator Kennedy. On Congressman Kennedy. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. he breaks the curse. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I think look, Democrats have really have 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 three um, goals they wish to achieve in this speech, and that's a lot. One, it's clear opposition to President Trump's policies that Democrats disagree with. Whether it's the immigration proposal, whether it's the you know um, repealing ACA or um, you know uh, other issues, immigration. Um, but that's number one. Number two is to um, really articulate a clear vision of what Democrats stand for, especially on the economy, and I think that's that's the location that. Uh, Congressman Kennedy is holding this. And then the third is, you know, talking to these to so many different types of voters. The the base voters. You have the newly engaged voters. You have the independent voters, the the satisfied Trump voters. So imagine putting all that together in a speech. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've helped in a couple, and it is hard, you know. Um, The leadership wants to be involved, but they say, no, no, you do it. But at the same time, well, this is important because we need to add this. This sorry, this language because that's our message. And I saw that excerpts, and it's in there. So, uh, so there's a lot of give and take, um, uh, deciding on who should do it. Usually, it's a bicameral decision between the House and the Senate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I think last year the Senate got it, so I think this year. Uh, the House got it. And I know this is uh, someone that, that Pelosi felt uh, would be a great voice for Democrats. Um, but it's it's tough. It's sure. everything from the location to the <laughs> tone. Uh, it's the biggest bullet that the minority has until election day.
4: Okay. And I, I think that's the, the that last point is the key reason why you do it, even though it Almost always is kind of a, uh, a second rate performance is it is your best shot to articulate what you think to try to compete with uh, the <coughs> louder voice that, that whoever the president is. I don't remember. One of the, the, the really great, terrible ones was uh, when uh, the, the former governor of Kentucky Steve Bashir did it in a diner. And it looked like it was nine of God. the dam I mean, yeah. you know, that these, like, these people looked like they were frozen in place. I like that, that was last time. Right, yeah, they yeah. weren't allowed to leave. Yeah, so thanks. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> But then we had Marco Rubio, you know, sweating and looking for his water. Yeah. And yeah. And, uh, and then probably the, the all-time worst one, which was Bobby Jindal, who was just, like, self the boring. Even though he's not a boring guy, but for some reason, that kind of context just brings out the worst, but but you, it's almost like one of these things that you hate to do, but you really have to do, and it's important to do, because it is your one shot, as you say, that this is what we stand for, and this is our rebuttal, and in some ways, aren't you, I mean, in some ways, I remember when Republicans were engaged in this, you really are talking to your own troops. I mean, you're not really going to convince everybody through this really bad speech in a crummy setting. You're, you're, you're reminding the faithful that, look, I, I know that guy has just had an hour-plus uh, dominating the airwaves. Saying things with which we mostly don't agree with, but um, but you know these are the things that you got to keep in mind. So stay strong. and We'll you know hopefully win another election down the road. I, I think I think it's mostly you're really talking to your own people and saying keep the faith. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back.
1: This week's Politicos is Real People uh, features a standing ovation for Steve Scalise during the State of the Union. He was shot last year during a Republican practice for the Congressional baseball game and came back to Congress after three and a half months of of recovery. Members of both parties stood and clapped for him, and it was a touching moment of humanity in a town um, that sometimes lacks that.
0: Yeah, I really love this moment. I mean, it's just so nice to see Republicans and Democrats come together. I mean, kind of unfortunate that this is the thing that ends up bringing Republicans and Democrats together, um, but it was really nice to see that moment. Um, And hopefully Steve Scalise continues to recover and uh, get back into Congress. So great for him. May I just say, I love the live recording idea. Um, this is such a fantastic way to connect with a lot of our audience. And I'm really glad people showed up for the State of the Union uh, address.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And hopefully next time we can do it again and get some nice Q&A going.
0: Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for uh, Mo, Stephen, and Nadim for uh, being our uh, little hosts this week. Uh, it was really awesome. And uh, we really guys appreciate you guys coming out.
1: Yeah, thank you guys so much. And see you all next week for the next pod.
0: Abby, how badly do you feel about the fact that the Vikings aren't in the Super Bowl?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for bringing it up again, because I, you know, still haven't been reliving it over every day of my life uh, since two weeks ago. I don't know if I can watch it.
0: I, I wouldn't think. if I were you.
1: Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's a sad day. I definitely think I cried, and I don't know how I can move on.
0: Are you reading for in the Super Bowl?
1: Neither person. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>